HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. I'm one of the co-owners of Samisa Restaurant with locations in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Thanks for joining us. It comes as no surprise that one of the owners and the opening chef of Hearts in Brooklyn is an alum of Andrew Tarlow Restaurants. You can see parallels between Tarlow's places like Diner and Marlowe and the restaurant's Heart and the Fly, owned by Leah Campbell, Nick Perkins, Niles Fallon, and Chef Katie Jackson. The mini-restaurant empire they are quickly building has carved out its own identity in a crowded New York City dining market. The small, unfussy restaurants are understated in their food design and service and received high praise for their flavorful plates and fantastic wine lists, embedding themselves immediately in their neighborhoods. Just like Tarla before them, their goal is to be the best in the neighborhood and for you to become their devoted and loyal regulars. Today's guest is Chef Katie Jackson, co-chef and partner at the award-winning restaurant Hearts in Brooklyn, as well as the recently opened wine bar and rotisserie chicken restaurant The Fly, which has a short but sweet menu, which we'll obviously talk about in a little bit. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. On today's episode, I want to talk a lot about, obviously, your career, your trajectory, how you ended up... uh, joining the team at Hearts, but I also want to talk about, uh, so keep this in mind, I want to talk about how you self-edit your dishes. I want to talk about opening the new location, having a space that was already open and then jumping into a whole nother project, and how to make and find your own leadership voice within an organization that has a lot of leaders. So, uh, But let's start off at the beginning, as we always do. Where were you born? Where are you from? I am a New Yorker. I was born in Manhattan. Um, I was born on the Upper East Side. We lived there for about six years. And then we actually moved to Tokyo. My mom's job kind of transferred her abroad. And me and my sister and my dad all went with her. We lived there for about five years. And then we came back and I've been in New York ever since. So what brought the family to Tokyo. What kind of work does your mom do? She's a uh, lawyer. She works for an international law firm. And so what type of experience did you have there as a young kid? Did you live always in a big city? Did you move around? Did you get to explore a lot of the country? What was your experience like? 
Totally, yeah. I, yeah, I've always lived in a big city. Um, it felt really natural to me um, because I moved there so young. Like, I really felt like I was from Tokyo. Um, and it was incredible. Yeah, we got to just kind of travel around Japan. When we would go on trips, it would be to kind of other neighboring countries. We would go to Thailand, go to Vietnam. So I really grew up, like, around that. What was your immersion-like language from a language perspective, did you do half your day in English, half your day? Like, did what, what, how much of, of Japanese did you actually learn? Totally. I mean, I spoke Japanese when I was there. Um, unfortunately, I do not anymore. Uh, That's I went a to bummer. An, thing. It's a you, true. You bummer. always lo- you lose the languages if you don't stick with them. It's re- yeah. My whole family still speaks. It's just me who lost it, which is a shame. Um, yeah, I went to an international school, so it was in English, and we just took um, Japanese as a class. Most people that get really excited about food, they cite a couple key countries, and Japan always falls on that list. There's, oh, I went on a study abroad to Italy, uh, oh, I, I went to Spain for a week with my family, Japan. Totally. Did the cuisine of Japan, the culture, did it grab you, or were you a little too young for it to sink in? at that point and do you reflect back as it being important? I think at first it de- I was definitely a little bit turned off by it, a little bit scared. Um, but then it became totally natural and it did sink in, but not in a way that I was just like, I love food. I'm going to be a chef when I grow up. Like, I think it was more subtle than that. I think it was just kind of part of me growing up. What was the age range when you were there? Six to 12. So you really did grow up there. You yeah. go from an age when you don't remember that much, around six to formative years of your early teenage years. The The culture in Japan is significantly different than the United States, although the independent nature of growing up in New York and being in Japan, there's probably some synergy there in I terms so. of how they're big cities and kids get a lot of leeway to kind of do what they want. Uh, were you timid as a kid or were you an explorer? I was very timid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the move definitely made me a little more standoffish. Um, I have an older sister who's a lot more kind of bold than I am, so I kind of followed her lead and definitely was the more shy one. Do you remember the? I, I assume that you had a you had American food at home to a certain extent, but do you remember like at school or maybe when you would go out at night? Was it the type of thing where you were often eating a lot of Japanese food and were you really digging it? Were you loving that there was a lot of raw fish and different flavors or were you kind of like pulling your hair out and thinking, oh my God, I would just really love a hamburger or a egg sandwich right now, something totally. like that? Um, well, I did not eat raw fish when mm-hmm. I lived there. I will okay. say that. <laughs> Definitely when I visited, I have. Um my dad actually wasn't working during those five years, so he kind of spent his time trying to like immerse himself in the culture, and he would actually cook us Japanese food all the time, and he would always try to push that on us. That's awesome. Yeah. He got a nice oh, sort of vacation, sure. oh, for sure. immersive experience. <laughs> so you come back to New York, you're 12-ish, 13 mm-hmm. years old. Do you move back to the upper... East side? We actually, we then moved to the Upper West Side. So I grew up, yeah, I went to high school on the Upper West Side. Jarring experience to come back? Yeah, definitely. Did it, did it feel, did you feel like an American returning or did you feel like a foreigner returning? I felt like a foreigner returning. Um, it's a weird experience it's totally to come weird. back to your original country but feel out of place. Yeah, 
Definitely. And so as a teenager, what really interested you? What ki- what type of things did you maybe see yourself doing uh, later on in life when you were a teenager? I mean, I loved reading. I loved writing. I ended up going to college for literature. Mm-hmm. That was kind of what I focused on. And so where did you go and did you think that maybe, oh, I'll get a, a master's or a PhD and I'll be... I'll, I'll be a researcher, I'll be a writer, I'll be a teacher. Was that kind of a path that you were potentially going down? You know, I it it wasn't because I started, I went to Bard in mm. upstate New York, and I my second year there is kind of when I started working in this industry. And after I started, there was truly like no looking back there was nothing else that I was going to do okay so take us through that process <laughs> how does that happen you're at Bard which is a very rigorous school yeah it's you can kind of create your own curriculum there to a certain extent mm-hmm. so you had some leeway you had some freedom but how did you get involved in the culinary space what was your first job yeah I um so I did my freshman year there I absolutely hated cafeteria and the food scene and I was desperate to move off campus which a lot of people do um I moved to this small village town called Tivoli um and there was this tiny bakery there and I kind of randomly was offered a job to work the counter um it's called Tivoli Bread and Baking it's this really tiny bakery in this big white house um and I started there I ended up working there for like three and a half years I fell in love with the space. It kind of was just kind of like this community center for the town. Everyone stopped there on their way to work. All of the gossip and the news kind of flew through this tiny place. There was this one baker, Mikey, who just did everything every day by himself, and he has this really beautiful way of running a business and uh, maintaining a nice culture, and I just fell in love with it after that. Did you immediately bake or were you mostly working sort of a cashier customer position and then you slid sort of back into the kitchen? I was pretty much, I mean, I did seven months of baking at some point during my time there, but pretty much I was behind the counter. Um, and then I actually picked up kind of like, I had my first restaurant job at this other place at the same time and kind of like picked up different jobs here and there. And you say that you're totally hooked. Was there an expectation from your parents or from yourself to finish school? Or did you think to yourself, eh, maybe the school thing isn't for me and I'll just kind of go out on my own and start and start cooking really full time? I finished school. I wanted to finish school. I mean, I, I loved the classes and the teachers and I, I was really lucky to have gotten to gone there. So I... And so what, what's your transition like after that? You finish school, you think to yourself, oh, the, the food world is kind of calling my name. Do you immediately jump into a restaurant in New York? Did you stay upstate <coughs> a little bit? Uh, what was your next move? Yeah, I stayed upstate. I stayed at the bakery for like as long as I would let myself. I just loved it there so much. Um, moved back to the city, had a panic attack that I wouldn't be able to get a job in a Manhattan restaurant. So I actually was lucky enough to be able to go to culinary school. So I went to ICC and did their like six month program and then uh, started an internship at Anissa and ended up staying there for three and a half years. And you worked there for a really long time. Yeah, you rose to sous chef at that restaurant. And so 
the before we talk about that and uh, and working in that system, which is a big rest, it was a big restaurant, and when it closed, I believe it had been open for twenty years. Is that I think right? It was 17, 15, 20 years. Yeah. So, so it was a, an institution Absolutely. in New York. How did culinary school prepare you for that experience? Was were there things that were big takeaways? Did it give you just generally more baseline confidence, or do you think that you really learned a lot of technical uh, proficiency by going to culinary school? I think you learn um, organization and how to move in a kitchen and how to kind of be tidy and uh, you know cut things well. It sounds basic, but it's important. Um, but besides that, I think like it, you know, it, it's hard to prepare yourself to work in a restaurant kitchen. It really is so different. You and, can't really teach that. And when you started there, what were some of the first things that you remember about being in that kitchen? Because it's so different without having been there. I'm just going to assume that it is so different than what you were used to upstate. It is a big New York City rumbling kitchen. Uh, was there immediate kind of shock and awe or did it feel comfortable and were you welcomed and integrated in a way that made it uh, an experience that wasn't overwhelming and daunting? I, they made me feel very comfortable and welcomed but I was completely terrified. I will be totally honest. <laughs> it, it was intimidating. It's a fancy kitchen. And so, so talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. What type of restaurant was it? And yeah. were you really, if you weren't really prepared for it, how did you, how did you learn how to be a line cook? So it's a, it, it was a fine dining restaurant um, in the West Village. It's the menu kind of drew from, all different places around the world. The chef, uh, Anita Lowe, was a big traveler. So she would go on a trip and kind of come back and bring this ingredient with her, and then she would come up with this beautiful dish around it. Um, you know, they have a really classic kind of like kitchen brigade system there. You start on Garmage, and they, you know, it's pretty simple, and they walk you through it. And you really just, it's it's really well set up to kind of grow in. And Anita, as a, as a teacher... Is she the type of chef that uh, was she, did she show by doing? Did she kind of let you run free and then correct you later? Like what type of system was it? And as you're moving up the ranks and you rose to become a sous chef there, how did you kind of figure out what, what worked for you as a cook? And then how did you internalize that as how you can implement that once you got the ability to have your own sort of leadership style at, totally. at, as a sous chef. Yeah. She, um, Anita definitely led, um, she was in the kitchen all the time. Um, she wasn't so much on the line when I was working there, but she was definitely present. Um, and she was very particular and she corrected a lot of things. Um, she wanted things to be really consistent, which is something that I definitely took away from that restaurant. Um, she could be quite tough, but she was an amazing leader. I think we just all respected her so much. Um, definitely when I first became a sous chef, I kind of like struggled with that balance because I'm definitely more of a, um, kind of laid back leader, but in that kind of kitchen, you have to be quite tough and you have to kind of mimic how Anita did things as well. 
was that rough for you to kind of fake a style that wasn't your own? Like to be maybe tougher than your first inclination would be? It, you know, it felt natural because I had been around it for so long. So it was kind of easy to just fall right into it. Um, but now that I'm not in that kind of kitchen, I'm like, oh, wait, th- that was not me. Like, this feels more right. Cool. So your your current role is actually a more true realization of what you feel is your kind of real leadership style. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to know about how you met Nick Perkins. Uh, can you give a little bit of the backstory of, so you were at, you were obviously, you were at a different restaurant. Did, um, did that restaurant close before you came over to the new restaurant or were you kind of searching while still at your previous job? How did it all come together? Yeah, I was searching. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew the one thing that I knew I was looking for was I wanted to work somewhere where the menu changed, um, if not daily, just quite often. And, um, my sister's fiance, Nate Adler, who owns Gertie, he, um, also knows Nick and kind of is in the industry and ha- knows a lot of people. He was like, you got to go to, uh, hearts. You're going to love it. You should just check it out. So I went there one night and met Nick and kind of just fell in love with the restaurant mm-hmm. kind of in the same way that I fell in love with the per- first place that I worked. And so Hearts had been open for how long when you came in for dinner a, that one that first time? I think it was about five months. And had it garnered the some of the acclaim yet? Had it been on folks' radar? Was it still flying a little under? It was still a little under the radar, yeah. It was still, um, you know, it had been getting a little bit of attention, but, um, you know, it hadn't gotten the Bon Appetit thing yet. and um, Were you there when it got the Bon Appetit? Or? I was, yeah. I, I got there about three months or so before that. And so before we talk about that and how that maybe changed yeah. things, so you meet with Nick, and Nick is the chef at the time, and he is also part of the ownership group, mm-hmm. uh, which we talked about in the way beginning. There's four-ish owners, depending on which restaurant you're talking about, which now you're you're one of the partners. Was there a discussion with him before you came in for your trail about, were you basically, were you staging, were you interviewing for the chef position, or were you not 100% sure what it was going to be? Uh, he was looking for a sous chef at the time. Okay. He was kind of, um, he was in this period where he was kind of doing this like guest chef thing where a bunch of his friends were kind of helping him out on different nights. Um, Mm -hmm. They had a tiny staff at Hearts at the time. So he was looking for like a more consistent sous chef. And so you went there, you ate the food. It seemed like an appealing space. And it is really, it's tiny. It's very small. (laughs) So did you kind of think to yourself all right, I'm going to be pretty much alone here during service. There's room for how many people back there? One, two, two. three, two. two. Okay, so you've got two cooks doing all the plating, mm-hmm. and then there's a couple people on the floor. Mm-hmm. So it's a small team. Everyone's yeah. really got to work in tandem. There's no, there's no like, oh, the eighth server on tonight will no. help out with the tables. Uh, so that is a big change, right? From the larger scale restaurant that you'd been working prior for about three and a half years. Was that, what was one of, what was the most appealing part of the job? Was it 
besides the changing menu? Was Mm -hmm. it the size? Was it how involved you could be? Like what really drew you to the project? Um, Why I'm so interested is because uh, there's so many restaurants that exist and you made a huge decision, right? Okay, I'm going to my next job. Like what were the full defining reasons why you wanted to make that call? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what it was is just like, this place is so small. You're, you can, you really have these two people who are on the line, just have control over everything that's happening. Every plate that goes out is just coming from two people. And that's kind of, it's pretty cool. It's pretty epic. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, of course, we're going to talk about more about hearts and we're going to talk about the newish project, the fly that just opened, uh, this year. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718 362 Three five three nine. Welcome back to the show. Today I'm joined by Chef Katie Jackson. She is a partner in Hearts and the Fly, both located in Brooklyn. Right before the break, we were talking about how she had spent a lot of time at Anissa working there, uh, rising up the ranks to sous chef. And then when she made her decision to move on to her next spot, she connected with the folks over at Hearts. So you end up at this restaurant. It's uh, a nice neighborhood spot in a sort of kind of awkward logistical spot. Um, And I assume that you you start and you're immediately you're working five shifts on the line and a couple months later bon appetit says that it's the fifth best restaurant in the united states does that change things the next day does it change things in a month span how does it affect things for you and for the restaurant yes that was a crazy time um (laughs) It really was just um, me and Nick in the kitchen at the time working every day. Um, So kind of just like overnight, we were packed all the time. Um, Niles kind of, we were just taking paper reservations and our book was just full and everyone was scrambling. It was, I mean, it was a great, it was a high energy time, but we were just like trying to keep up. It's such... A double-edged sword. There's people listening probably that are going to say, are you kidding? Like, I would die to be on a list. I would would kill to be a top 50 restaurant, right? But 
it comes with its own set of challenges, which I would love for you to talk about. But the one that I can think of immediately is that it just makes the stakes really, really high, which increases the pressure on you uh, and the internal front of house, back of house team. Because whereas before someone says, oh yeah, Hearts, that's a neighborhood restaurant. I think I had a nice meal there. Oh, I, I enjoyed it, right? Now everyone is expecting to have an incredible, mind-blowing meal, every plate, like the the margin for error is invisible now. Mm-hmm. And you have people coming that aren't just expecting a really nice meal. So beyond the the press, the increased pressure, what how did it affect everyone on the team? And how did you all react to those changes of of going uh, from being sort of a normal restaurant, quote unquote, to having a huge wait list and the expectations? Well, we were, I mean, we were also happy and we were also excited. Um, what I will say though, is like what we do is so, um, kind of like thought out and, um, you know, simple at the end of the day that we were able to kind of maintain that neighborhood feel and people were coming to kind of experience a neighborhood restaurant and they still got the same thing that they were getting when we, when hearts first opened and they, you know, kind of stays true to this day. Yeah. Nick has a a great quote that I found from an article about you two both that he said, uh, we cook it for a long time or barely at all. Mm -hmm. And I, I liked that because, uh, that's a nice way to describe a neighborhood restaurant. Totally. And I use the word unfussy before, and I don't mean that in a, an offensive way. I mean that as, as a term of endearment, like there can be a lot of, um, restaurants in New York that are trying extremely hard to cram everything onto the plate. Can you talk a little bit about the menu at Hearts first? We know the fly is a little bit more pared down Mm -hmm. because it's a wine bar with not as many options, but at Hearts, how do you, now that you are in charge, self-edit, how do you really decide what ends up on the plate and how hard is it for you to uh, trim things down if it is at all. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the hardest challenge. It's like you come up with this concept and then you think, how can I actually make this happen in our tiny little kitchen? And the way we do it is really kind of what Nick said, long cooking things, building flavor during the day so that when you're on the line and you're doing the dish, the pickup is kind of just like scooping it in, warming it up, you know, heating up something and then pouring it onto the plate and you know all of the work went in earlier so that we can make that happen is there a specific dish on right now it's getting a lot warmer so maybe there aren't as many long braises on the menu Mm -hmm. but can you take us through something that really articulates the 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 process the sort of a lot of back-end work with a quick pickup i would love to hear something that really makes that come to light. Totally. I mean, I think, let's think of a summer thing. We do a lot of crudos. We work with um, Greenpoint Fish and Lobster Company, which is amazing. Um, So our crudos, for example, the only real thing that we're doing on the pickup is slicing the fish to order. And then what we do is we take these uh, chilies that we've been fermenting and then we toast them in oil for all day until they get really nice and uh, kind of build a lot of depth and then we grind it up with some other peppers and then we have built this beautiful chili oil so that on the pickup 
we're just slicing the fish and it's just chili oil down some pickled peppers that we've pickled, you know, last week. And that's about it. It's really just like putting the work into the oils and the pickles and then using this beautiful product. Do you or anyone else from the ownership management team, have you ever killed a dish before? Because it's something that you love, it tastes good, you're passionate about it, but it maybe is either too complex or just doesn't fit the vibe of hearts. Is that an issue that you've ever run into before? Not really fitting the vibe, but it does bring to mind, we have this seafood rice that we run sometimes and our cooks hate it because for some reason it's really difficult to pick up kind of over and over again with our three induction burners. So that's one dish that we're just definitely going to put on the back burner so for now. So there's no gas at heart? <laughs> no gas. Does the fly have gas? We have, a, yeah, we have a rotisserie at the fly. Cool. So working on induction burners is its own kind of set of challenges. Can you talk a little bit about that? For people that have never worked in a kitchen that's a non-gas kitchen, what does it does it allow you to do anything else or does it just make you really creative and it's kind of a bummer at the end of the day from a pickup standpoint? It's, you know, I thought that I would not like it and I'm actually just like a true believer in it now. It's so, Mm. you have a lot of control. Um, You, it's easy to clean up. It's really just kind of like a nice organized setup And you can do more than you think you can. I mean, they're pretty powerful. They are powerful. And also there's a difference between trying to explain to a cook, okay, you turn the knob to 38 degrees. I promise you that is the perfect (laughs) spot. We sear at, you know, this bizarre angle. You just say, just, you put it to four and then you cook it (laughs) for six minutes and ride it on four. Uh, And and so it's, it's interesting that the... The setup at Hearts, it almost feels like a lot of things there are dictated by the space. It feels like they may have found the space and then walked backwards and been like, all right, well, this is the space, so this is what the dining room looks like. Mm -hmm. And all right, we don't have gas, so we're doing it this way. Mm -hmm. It's also a little bit sort of hidden behind the the train stop, right? Mm -hmm. So it had kind of a lot of things almost going against it, and yet it still was able to achieve success. Um, do you think that that's because of the people in place? Do you think it's luck? Do you think it's just being at the right place at the right time? The neighborhood needed a neighborhood restaurant. Like what were the pieces that made it come together? Because someone might look at that restaurant and say that would, that's a restaurant that I don't think would have made it. It's Mm -hmm. hidden behind train stairs and they have a $18 crudo on the menu or yeah, whatever it might totally. be. So um, what do you think are the pieces that really has made it so come together so well? I mean, I want to say, I, you know, there's always luck involved because there's so many great restaurants that have not been able to succeed. Um, but I do think that Hearts just has this warmth to it um, that when people come and dine, they just immediately fall in love. We, you know, we've really put a lot of thought into how people feel at the restaurant. Um, we, how people are, you know, in- interpreting the amount of food that we're giving them, how people are uh, seeing the space that they're in, how people are interacting with the music. There's a lot of thought in that restaurant. And I think the diners really appreciate that and feel it. Let's talk a little bit about the business side and the structure. There are, uh, 
most normal restaurants would have either a chef and an owner and maybe they collaborate on a one-on-one. You have a couple other cooks in the kitchen, for lack of a better term. You have some other heads with ideas. Do you all have a a weekly owners slash manager meeting? Is it monthly? I want to hear a little bit about what the actual structure and decision-making progress is like from a collaborative standpoint where everyone's coming to the table with their own ideas to share. Totally. Um, That's kind of the beauty of this company that I, you know, I just, I love so much is that um, Niles, Nick and Leah kind of, they bring all of the managers to the table and everyone has a voice and everyone can say their ideas and their opinions. Um, And it's a weekly discussion. Totally. And now that you are running two places, how are you kind of splitting your time and and which one requires more of your overview right now? So the fly, I mean, the menu at the fly is very small. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really, it's the rotisserie chicken. It's a side of greens. It's potatoes, French fries, and a big salad. Um, so definitely in terms of kitchen management, um, the fly is easier to kind of let them let the cooks kind of roll and do it on their own we have a great sous chef there who runs the day-to-day kitchen hearts obviously the menu changes every day so it definitely requires more attention Um, but because the fly is new I've definitely been you know we spent a lot of time there when it first opened just kind of getting everything right because it's so simple it has to really be spot on so talk a little bit about the fly I want to know when you all decided, all right, Hearts is running. We've got a successful restaurant on our hands. Let's do another spot. And uh, for those listening that are wondering what is the other restaurant in the group that we haven't talked about as much, there's Servos, which is on the Lower East Side, which is a wine bar that is seafood-centric. Is that an acceptable way to describe it? Totally. They, they're pretty much a restaurant with a really expansive wine list and they focus more on uh, Spain and Portugal. So there are two places that already exist in the group that are really restaurants. Mm -hmm. And then Hearts is um, a a daily changing menu. And then the fly is sort of a deviation from both of those, right? It's a more stripped down menu and it is a more of it's a drinking experience, right? Which is like the food is there because of course, people want to eat when they're at a bar. And also, let's be honest, it helps them stay longer, right? They're not going to leave if there's things to snack on. Mm-hmm. So how did you all make the decision? You you maybe find the space, you conceptualize the idea, but why not a third sit-down standard restaurant? Here's a menu with 17 items on it. Why go in a different direction? I think I, – I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but I do think the three owners um, work – they wanted to have a bar that was close by to one of their restaurants. And that in itself has been really beautiful to see kind of like the interaction between Hearts and the Fly. We have people going back and forth in one night. And, you know, like they're on the wait list for Hearts, so they'll go grab a drink at the Fly or... How close are they? They're, it's like a four-minute walk. Okay. Yeah. And so was the space found... And then the determination was to make it a bar or was everyone looking around and saying we should really do a bar next? I'm, I mean, again, I don't want to speak for them, but I'm pretty sure that the bar was the next idea. Cool. Yeah. And, and from a, 
from the standpoint of, of opening a project, had you been involved in an opening before or was this the first time? This was my first. Can you talk a little about that? Totally. How, how did it feel to be uh, at the, from the conceptualization phase? There's a lot of creativity that gets to happen before opening and how much of an exciting, terrifying process was that? Yeah, it was extremely fun. Um, really just seeing the space get transformed. Russell Nick's brother designed it, and it just was so beautiful to watch it all play out. And it was funny. I mean, like, it's hard to conceptualize a menu until you're actually in that space cooking it. You know, we didn't get the rotisserie oven till a couple weeks before we opened, and we really didn't try the birds until a couple of weeks before we opened. So it was kind of this nerve wracking thing. We would roast chickens off in the oven, but as you know, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. It's one of the horrible slash great things about opening a restaurant is that you plan, 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 plan. And then a couple of weeks before you open, you actually get in the space yeah. and realize, well, that doesn't fit there. <laughs> and okay, well, we have to completely change that idea because yeah. being in the space and even once you open, did things change dramatically? Did you see yeah. things once bodies were in the space and how people were interacting with the menu and the drink menu and all that and have to make changes on the fly? Sorry for the... No, 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 totally. Yeah, it. we had to make a lot of changes and we definitely, you know, it was hard to anticipate the volume of food that we were going to be serving. So speak to that. So it was it was busier than you had anticipated, and so it was was yeah, it tough I mean, to keep up? It, we didn't. We just didn't know. So it was kind of just a guessing game on our part. And um, luckily, you know, once you have kind of an idea of how much you're doing, it becomes easier to keep up. And we, you know, now it's just this flowing system. Do you find that there's a consistency at both restaurants that allows you as the chef to plan efficiently? Like, do you look at a week over week and say, well, I know that Monday through Thursday is like this. And I know Saturday is like that. Is that has have things settled in a little bit at both locations for you to a certain extent? Kind of. Yeah. But then you get this like rogue Tuesday. That's just like super busy. And you know, you don't, you never really can, can predict too much. And so the seasonality of hearts that is probably where you get to do a lot of exciting creative things that where you kind of get to flex that part of your brain what do you have coming on now that we're we're in this like perfect middle zone like everything's like about to come in because it's getting hot what are you working with now and what are you kind of super excited about come summertime when things really come on in totally i feel like now we're all just obsessed with peas and in a couple of week, we'll all be obsessed with tomatoes, <laughs> which I'm really excited about. And and what kind of things do you usually do with tomatoes at the restaurant? Like, are you gonna put? Are you are you one of those people who's like, I love tomatoes. I'm gonna put it in every single thing. Or are you going to just maybe get really good tomatoes and highlight them very simply? Totally. We definitely like we like to highlight the tomatoes and just do like a big slice of heirloom tomato on the plate. Super simple with a little salad on top. But that being said, we do sneak tomatoes into pretty much everything <laughs> during the season. The uh, Now that you're a partner and you have sort of additional responsibilities, how do you find the experience to be now, now that you, 
you don't just have to come in and order and prep and then leave, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to have eyes on everything. You mm -hmm. have a sort of a new perspective. Um, is there someone that you lean on outside of your organization for like mentorship, advice in that capacity when you have questions that go beyond just calling your three, four other partners? Is there someone that you speak to, another cook, another chef that you've worked for or, or like uh, in the world? I would have to, I mean, uh, my sister is in the industry also. She's She does um, kind of like the front of house side of things. She's a beverage manager right now. She has kind of, we've kind of been each other's support system through that whole thing. Um, you know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of nice to have a sibling in the industry to just be like, what do you like really think about this? And it's nice that, that you know, so Gertie's is in Williamsburg and obviously there's, you can just, they just went through an opening of their own. So you guys are kind of on the same page in terms of all the new challenges that you were facing over the last year because you just did it and she just did it. I'm sure you could compare a lot of notes back and forth on things like that. Totally. Uh, do you sometimes find that having your family be in the industry though can also turn it into the conversation is always, always, always food. Is that problematic for you or not? It's not problematic for me. It's probably problematic for like anyone who hangs out with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, my brother and his wife are both in the industry and I sometimes find that not everyone always wants to talk about that. Yeah, and that can totally. be kind of <laughs> problematic when you're just talking about the business, the business, the business. Uh, what do you do to kind of get outside of, of the fly and hearts. What are other things in the city that you like to do when you have a little bit of downtime and you don't necessarily want to be thinking about new dishes, <laughs> staffing, totally. all labor laws, all those things. I mean, it's, you know, it's the best city in the world. I, you know, just trying to like go to museums, get into Manhattan. I feel like because I work in Brooklyn now, I'm just always in Brooklyn. So I try to get myself into the city on one of my days off just to kind of get out of the bubble. Is your family still in the city? They are, yeah. Okay, cool. So you have you get to, I get to not travel them. too far and, yeah, be, and totally. be able to see them. Yeah. Um, when you are thinking about your next year, two years, three years, what is exciting to you about how you can grow as a chef and also as a businesswoman? I mean, I think what I like to kind of focus on in the broader scheme of things is just thinking about hiring in a smart way and kind of broadening the industry to include more diverse types of people, more women in the kitchen, um, just kind of building thoughtful kitchens so that more people want to participate in this industry because it's, it's hard. What advice would you have for a sous chef who's looking to make the jump to take on a new role, maybe coming into an established restaurant as you had? You've obviously had a great deal of success growing in one restaurant, and now you've expanded that role. What would you say to someone who looks at you as a role model and says, I would love to do what you what you do? What would you tell them? I mean, I would... I Definitely when every job that I've been offered, I've thought that I wasn't prepared for. So I would just say to like not block yourself off from it and kind of step 
into the position, even if you think that you're not ready and just kind of grow in it rather than kind of holding yourself back from it. When people that work at a restaurant right now, there's, there's always folks that listen to the show that do everything from they're a barista to a server, to a line cook, to a chef. It seems daunting to a lot of people to have to go to one job in one restaurant five shifts a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, You all in your group do more than that. Being on the inside of that for now, beyond just the answer, which is like, we make it work, right? How really do, let's get down to the nuts and the bolts of it. How do beyond just planning your day well, how do you take on so much day-to-day nonsense that can exist in one restaurant and grow that into sort of an expanding mini restaurant empire. There's three now. It's safe to say that there's probably another one in a dream state or in a development state, right? So how do you keep moving forward and expand? I think it's it's really staying organized. I think it's having those weekly meetings and saying kind of like, who realistically can take on this project and who can do this? And everyone kind of takes their thing and runs with it. It's really just over communicating about what needs to get done. Do you all use a a Slack or some type of communication beyond just text messaging and emailing? Yeah, we have like a Google doc and a, it's, it's really just email. It's yeah. just we have a talking group, group in calendar. person and just emailing. We, we see each other all the time. Like, I mean, the three owners, they're just cycling through all three restaurants. It's pretty remarkable. Just every day you yeah. see them <laughs> walking in and out of them. Yeah. And, uh, And so if you can, if you can talk about or share anything, is there anything new on the horizon? Is there any glimmer of a new project that you can share even in a vague, shrouded way? Truly nothing that I know of, and I'm not even lying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, just focusing on three of them for right now, which seems totally fair. Um, The fly, which hasn't been open for a year yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is a, a cocktail bar and it has sort of like a, a limited menu, right? And do you find now that it's kind of settling in, do you or anyone else on the team think, eh, maybe we should expand the menu a little bit. Maybe we should stretch it out and add, and add more dishes. Do you think that that would be, would that add to the experience, take away from the experience and sort of, moving back to the question of like self-editing the plates and things like that, how do you know when to just draw the line? I feel like there would be a inclination to either say, gosh, it's, it's not working as well as we had hoped. Let's add in a full menu or wow, people are coming here and eating food. Let's add in a full menu, right? How do you, how do you navigate those waters? I think what's cool is all of us kind of want to keep that menu consistent and small like that. So that makes it really tough when we're in, when we're inspired to add something, it's going to be really specific and just really deliberate. Um, but I don't know that it's going to change our, I think it'll just be a little extra something every so often. I I think we're going to keep it pretty consistent. Can you let everybody know where both restaurants are and just kind of sum up if you can, when they're open? I know it's kind of, it's a lot of hours and everything. Um, so Hearts is located in Bedsty. It's on Franklin Avenue and Fulton Street. Uh, it's open Tuesday through Sunday um, for dinner, five thirty to 
10.30, 11 on the weekends. Uh, we're also open for brunch, 11 to 3 on Saturday and Sunday. The Fly is uh, right down the street on Classen Avenue and Fulton Street. We are soon going to be moving to seven days, but right now we are Tuesday through Saturday. Um, open at 5, kitchen closes at 11, midnight on Friday and Saturday, and the bar is open until 1 a.m. Chef, thanks for being here and sharing your story and telling us about both your restaurants. Congratulations on the new spot and, of course, the continued success at Hearts. Uh, we appreciate you swinging by. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. You can find all of these episodes and all the episodes from 10 years' worth of shows at heritageradionetwork.org. Go and check it out. And also, if you're feeling like making a donation to us, we're in the middle of our 10th anniversary summer drive. We've got new member gifts. Go over to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate and check it out. We would love your support for my show and, of course, all the other shows on the air so we can keep giving you all this great food content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday at 11 a.m. for another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. This is Eli Sussman, host of The Line on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for almost three years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio made from two recycled shipping containers because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories from the world of food. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting the line in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN.